Welcome to Executive Tools. I'm Mark Horseman, and we have a treat for you. One of my very best professional friends, guy I've known for, what, 14 years maybe? Probably, maybe even more. Uh, Trevor Woods, the Chief Information Officer of the University of Sydney, is our guest on Executive Tools. Many of you know that I write the show notes for Manager Tools and for Executive Tools, and I edit the Career Tools show notes. And we rarely have guests. I think we've only had five guests in 17 years and something like roughly 1,700 podcasts. And the reason we don't is because everybody else has guests, which just proves they don't have any ideas of their own. We have plenty of ideas of our own. I have 3,000 more podcasts to write. So because we don't need guests, I generally don't want guests, unless there is nothing I can write that would be as good as you hearing from a guest. Now, that's a pretty high standard. And Trevor far surpasses that standard. When I heard this story, and he and I were chatting, text messages and so on, and doing uh, audio FaceTime calls when he was in uh, Sydney, and I'm here in California or traveling around, about what he was going through a couple of years ago. It was so exciting to hear him talk about all the things he was doing and what was happening and how complex the situation was and at the same time how simple it was. So this cast, I should have said this at the top and I'm sorry, this cast is called The War Room and it stars Trevor Woods. Trevor's background is he was a technology executive at University of Lethbridge in Canada started listening to our podcasts, and fortunately, Trevor's really smart and very engaging as a person. One of the reasons I like him, he's a high D, high I, just like me. We talk the same language. And it wasn't because of our podcast, although he might tell you that. He got promoted and promoted and promoted. And then he left University of Lethbridge and went to University of Alberta in Alberta, in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. And by the way, those of you who know uh, the person who runs our public conference business, Sarah Sentis. Sarah used to work for Trevor as his executive assistant and one day came to me and said, I want to work for you. And I had this horrified look on my face, which she thought meant I wasn't interested when in fact it was, the rule is you can't hire people away from your clients. It simply is not done. Then that situation changed. And so we were able to hire her. And so Trevor, thank you for Sarah. And Trevor became the chief information officer of University of Alberta and then hired us to do training for virtually all of your managers over a course of a couple of years. I remember going, coming with Danny and coming with Mike and um, training hundreds of managers. I still get notes from people at University of Alberta. Hey, Mark, remember fondly the time you were up here? Still finally like management in part because of the approach you gave us, uh, and I feel like I can handle it. When I get those kind of notes from... I mean, it's 15 years ago, and it's still cool. Uh, then uh, Trevor left and became CIO of Monash University in Melbourne, Australia, and then went to the flagship of all universities, the Harvard of Australia, at the University of Sydney, where he is now the chief information officer. And during the pandemic, because of Trevor's proven management and leadership chops, Separate from his role as CIO, he played a key role in the university's incredibly important response to the pandemic, or as I like to say, the governmental responses to the pandemic. And so, Trevor, I hope I've done you justice. Trevor, by the way, is married to a wonderful lady, Giselle, and they have three wonderful kids, and uh, one of whom has been to one of our conferences, which is one of the highlights of my career. And Trevor's here to share his experience in the war room. Trevor, anything I left out, anything that wasn't, oh, oh, I need to say one more thing before I turn it over to you briefly. And that is, if you're listening to this cast on Manager Tools and you think, well, they Manager Tools made a mistake. This is Manager Tools, but he's talking about Executive Tools. This is a rare exception. We're going to release this cast to the Manager Tools feed so that you can see what Executive Tools is like although this is a departure because usually we have show notes and it's usually just me and Mike talking. But 
I knew this cast was going to be so much fun that I wanted the entire audience to get an experience of the kind of things executives have to deal with. And I knew Trevor would be engaging in and a good instructor or leader of the discussion. Okay, so that said, Trevor, anything I leave out, any high-level stuff that you want to share with the audience before we get going? I think you did a, a great job. Maybe just that um, for universities now, there are so many similarities and so many differences. And you know, one of them really corporate-minded, efficient, uh, driven on the bottom line and the experience versus the story we're going to share, which is uh, often referred to as the sleeping giant, uh, the University of Sydney. Um, the cult just evolved. It's dated. It's it's uh, well over 100 years old. Um, doesn't think it needs to change. And that's, that's probably the important context of how I could take a previous experience at a university that was very driven, right. uh, action-orientated, and taking those lessons into a very different context where the culture just doesn't want to react uh, positively. And as a general rule, if your culture is one, and feel free to disagree with me on this, but as you said it, Trevor, I thought, if your culture is one that doesn't want to change, the world will at some point send you a very different and probably devastating message. And in this case, it did. Okay, so give us the context. Take us back to February, March, 2020. Well, it's almost this time two years ago. So we're at the end of January now. It's uh, January 29th, Saturday in uh, 2022 in in Australia. Yeah, Um, exactly. And it was about this time that the pandemic looked like it was was, uh, getting bad. And I suppose... You know, the the nuts of, I guess, what you want to get to is around the whole university's response to things. But the lead up to that was I had only been in the job about three months. I had joined in September 2019. um, And, you know, I've always been a good believer that you should take the time to meet people, understand the context, executives that come in too quickly and just start actioning things without any relationships or understanding often create problems. Looks good on the surface. They leave, all falls apart, but they got promoted. So really, all I had done from September to December was go around and meet people and understand. And that might sound like a long time, but it's a very large university where probably 65,000 students at that time, um, very devolved. Everyone was used to doing their own thing. Years prior, I had found out individual divisions and faculties, if they had the money, they would go off and build buildings without any sort of control through the organization. So it just gives you a sense of how uh, fragmented it was. I thought you were going to say they would build their own IT organization. They well, built they, of course, did that too. Yes. Yeah. So the university prior to me joining had been on a journey to try and pull together much more as one organization, one university, but there's still a long way to go. So it took a long time to get out meet people. Everyone has their own ideas of how to, how to do something and, and was off in all directions. And December is summertime in Australia. So things shut down. University is at its breaks in the Northern Hemisphere. That would be the sort of the April to August period. Everything goes quiet. So I was just getting back at the end of January and the pandemic looked like it was uh, potentially something that could get worse. And why we thought that, why I thought that was we depend heavily on international students. So the government policy over the last couple of decades in Australia saw major reductions in funding and the universities here responded by bringing more international students in, which can help fund domestic teaching and fund research as well. And the university grew phenomenally in that period. So if there was any risk of Chinese students in particular, because most of our students do come from China, the international, um, it would have a huge impact on our revenue. So I basically pulled together a team as a new like, CIO. Go, go back. When you say significant, I think there are people who say, oh, 15, 20%. No, hundreds of millions of dollars. Literally over a billion gone. dollars. Over yeah, a we're billion talking, dollars. Yeah, about a $2.8 billion university. Um, well over 500 million was at risk in 2019 that we thought would be impacted. And that didn't mean all students weren't coming from international. That was yeah. a significant impact. So, um, you know, I mean, this is a, this is like a, a planet killer, potentially. I mean, if you don't, uh, 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 unless it ends up being, I'm predicting here, you don't have those students, you don't make any changes, you don't change your cost structure, and basically you're insolvent virtually overnight, and 
you have to go begging on hands and knees to the government. I'm making all this up, by the way. And then the government owns you. That's right. Now, we hadn't realized that, what you just said at that point, but that was the good old honest truth. And as the pandemic unfolded, those were very serious concerns um, for the university and various things we did to respond to that. Uh, I'm happy to say in the end has worked out so far uh, good for us, but a lot of luck has come come into it as well, which we can talk about. Um. Lot, well, that brings, every time I you say this, we've told that you've, we've talked about this for the last two years. I've said to you one of my favorite quotes, which is luck is the residue of design. You always mention luck because you're a humble guy, but man, all the people I know and respect, they got piles of luck laying around. And it's because they're figuring out the angles, they're understanding the situation, they're recognizing where their risks are, they're attempting to mitigate them. And if you plan and then work your plan, the world can respond to you. If you don't plan, you are now responding to the world and all the luck is always on the attacker side. Yep, you're 100% right. And I'd referred to the University of Sydney as the sleeping giant prior. Yeah. And other universities would say, if, if the University of Sydney ever woke up, we would be toast because they're so good uh, from the history and from funding. And, you know, luck, a lot of good actions were taken at the right time to get us through. So I don't want to minimize that at all. But one of the problems we have and one of the negative side effects of our response to the pandemic has been reinforcing that nothing can touch us. And not, <laughs> oh, not everybody will know that we took actions to do things and, they, and, and others will think, well, we just, um, we're just that good. We sort of, we have the hallowed halls of the sandstone buildings and, um, you know, we have a lot of very important government, uh, global executives who have University of Sydney degrees. And I mentioned China, um, the influential people from China have gone there and they want to send their kids there. So the point is, no matter how bad we get in some sense, people will want to go because of the brand. Right. And that plays against us. And it certainly did during the response to the pandemic. We can talk more about how yeah. um, we had to push up against that thinking uh, to try and get actions and ultimately doing it. All right. So now, you know, you're, you're, you're beginning to see, oh my, at the same time, by the way, that I was talking to my buddy, John Hoffman, I texted him and said, my gut is telling me this is bad. And he said, oh yeah, he, I think he had just got back from China and, and, and as luck would have it just in time. And John's the CEO of a successful Silicon Valley company. And he, he said, Oh, yeah. And then I started getting texts from other guys who knew John saying, I'm not feeling so good about this. This is going to be bad. Yeah. So one guy wrote, ah, it's going to be fine. Hoard your cash. Well, and the other context here that I think is really important is, um, you know, this is a spectrum of universities globally. Uh, on the one end, the new modern university that does 100% online, zero face-to-face -face classes, they would use technology and understand how their curriculum and teaching needs to adapt. The other end of the spectrum is almost none of that. And we're sitting more on that latter spectrum. Uh, less than 10%, I was told at the time, of our classes um, did some sort of online component. So we're that, that's really important context here to think, well, we've got students who may not be able to get from China to the country. We've got an environment that even if we get technically working, could we be able to respond? And, and the short answer is we did, and it amazed everybody. And it's another example of what you can do when you have to uh, come together. Yeah. In fact, you know, you talk about only 10% of classes were online, but to some degree, that is a, a direct result of the brand, which says you pay to come here, you pay for That's the right. collegiate experience, you pay for the interchange. And if you've taken online classes and you've taken a similar class that's face-to-face, -face, you know the incredible difference. We could certainly talk about it relative manager tools and clients call and say, well, we'll think we'll just go virtual. So, you know, we do that and it's cheaper because you won't get as much out of it because it's not, it's not the same experience. And not just that, but the, the brand of a world-class university is by definition assumed to be small classrooms, uh, exalted teachers, you know, Nobel laureate or equivalent kind of professors, those kinds of things. And then suddenly, the very thing that makes your brand so 
if you'll pardon me saying so, self-serving. Wow, good people go there, so more good people want to go there because the experience is so good. Suddenly, all of that is at risk. You can, There's an assumption, you can't do that. You are not going to have people in classrooms. For whatever reason, whether the government was right or not, or whether the pandemic, in terms of literally saving lives, really required that or not, it didn't matter. Very quickly, it was clear there were not going to be in-person classrooms. And then suddenly, part of the very brand says, if we stick with this brand, I think what you're saying to us is, if we stick with this brand, we might be in danger of going out of business. Right. Because if we say we have to be collegial and we have to be together and the world says you can't be together, what do we do? We just shrug our shoulders and we're like, okay, well, I guess we're not working for a while. We'll see how that goes. Yep, exactly. And as we enter the third year of this now, uh, we're just a, a few weeks away from our semester one starting at the end of ah. February. Um, and we didn't think that our enrollments would hold to the extent that they have, which we can come back to. I mean, we, as we, we've alluded to, right. half a billion dollars or more was um, seen to be at risk in 2020, uh, the first year of the pandemic, and we managed to avoid that. Uh, in fact, our enrollments grew the next year, and it looks like they're growing again. So it's kind of a good news story. But I'm pleased to say the university is, is at least the senior administrators are taking the position that this could be a temporary phenomena. And this is an opportunity for us to write our business, so to speak. Oh, and good. When academia don't like to refer to it as, as business and, you know, the teaching aspect and so on isn't, but um, it still has cash in and cash out. You've got to yeah. run park like you have a to business. Pay people. And, yeah. Yeah. And we want to be able to do the cutting edge research in the future and um, the phenomenal teaching yeah. and learning. That takes can, place. can I go back to something else I know that I don't think the audience knows? You say you rely on a lot of international students. The government reduced funding. And so the university said, hey, well, we can go out and get, well, our brand will attract people. And you certainly did. It, by the way, it's the third largest export of Australia, the entire country, uh, international students. It is, it is not a little thing for the economy. Well, that's energy. where I was going, right? There's an old joke that, where is Western Australia? Well, we shipped it all to China, right? That's why there are big holes in the grinds out at, out at Kalgoorlie and so on, where, to which I have been. Um, but I don't think people understand when you talk about international students. For one, those international students are paying you, and there's taxes involved in that that help fund the government. But essentially... What happened was Canada's economy around a service, not a product, but a service was threatened because the income coming into the Canadian economy from those students disappears. Australia. You're talking to a Canadian in Australia. Oh, I'm sorry. That's right. <laughs> Australia. Exactly right. I, I know you're from Canada. I just spent, I just had brunch with Sarah and Kate and Sarah's from uh, Canada as well. So you're right. Yeah. I mean, Australian economy, your, your business model, and we could call it something different to assuage the, the, the blue nose professors, but that business model was a fundamental part, a huge part of the Australian economy. And I would argue that an awful lot of people in the world today, United States, Canada, Europe, whatever, don't understand the economics around universities around tertiary schooling, about higher levels schooling, and, and the governmental impacts of the revenue or lack thereof. So it's interesting you use the term export. Your knowledge at the university gets exported to a foreign country, and that brings in cash, which is a balance of payments issue. It's about our trade imbalance, right? How much do we send out and how much do we get in? Suddenly, one of the pillars of the Australian economy, gone. Yeah, Absolutely. And, yeah. and it is going to impact negatively because we are one of a handful of universities that has seen our enrollments stay steady or increase. Almost all universities have had major reductions right. in international student enrollment. We expect that will likely continue for them this year. And many of them have also been hit with domestic enrollments dropping. So the good news story at this point for the University of Sydney isn't being felt by others. And, you know, the, the other thing people need to understand is third largest export in the economy for Australia, but those students come here and they get part-time jobs and they help run 
uh, various services. They work in coffee shops. They work yeah. all over the oh. place. Uh, they work in universities um, as well. And they pump money into the economy. So there's a secondary effect there that's often missed just in that third largest export number. Then, according to a friend of mine who's a demographer and uh, he's an actuary who's a, a who's a demographer as well. He says it, it, he would take your story one step further and said because there there aren't those jobs. Many people feel we can't start a family because we only have one income, and the spouse who used to be able to find a readily available job and then perhaps get promoted to a place where we can afford a child suddenly we don't have a child, and then suddenly our replacement rate and I know folks don't think about this falls below two point one. And suddenly we have the situation that's facing China and to some degree India as well, where the engine of economic growth is the number of people. And while there are some people who would say, well, that's actually a good thing. We don't not need, need that many people. Actually, they don't understand how the population works and it's unlikely that the population of the earth will ever get over, over 11 billion, which we could easily support now with the food we have. But then that creates tertiary effects on the economy. There's no kids, and so there's no not as much demand for primary schools, which affects teachers, which affects the businesses around those schools as well. Yeah, in fact, I think Elon Musk recently tweeted that um, you know we need people need to have kids. <laughs> We're going to have a yeah. problem here. So some people are saying we've got to reduce population. Yes. He's saying we actually need to uh, need to be thinking about how we smooth this up. Yeah. This this from a guy who once said, "I really only need a wife about 15 minutes a week." Yeah. Okay. Okay. Right. Elon. <laughs> I think we could write an entire book of things Elon Musk has tweeted, and you could put anything in there. And that's right. <laughs> yeah. Some people have lost a lot of money and gained a lot yeah, of money. Exactly. Just from, uh, yeah. Okay. So the pandemic is happening, but I, I would like to go back, and particularly, we're going to talk about the war room. You're having these thoughts in your head. You're you're doing the math and seeing the situation. What actually happened that got the war room started, or what meeting occurred or what did your boss say to you and so on? So there are two war rooms and the first one's the most important one because if it didn't happen, the subsequent one wouldn't have occurred. And, um, you know, it goes back again to the context that I'm new to starting. We're coming yeah. out of January. People are just starting to come back to work. And so I, I said to my uh, directors, my team, uh, I think we should get on the front foot here because if the university is needs to teach into China, we're not prepared. And in fact, later on, a couple of weeks later, my boss had said, everyone knows our IT here isn't up to snuff. We've recruited you here because we've known for years we've underinvested. We want to invest hundreds of millions of dollars in it over the next few years to bring it up. So don't make promises you can't keep. We cannot teach more online. And he, he said various things to me like that, which in all fairness were absolutely true. Right. But we assembled a room of about 25 people uh, from various parts of IT. And when, when you say we, let, let's be clear. Myself and my directors. And I've got one director who's a, he's in charge of kind of service management right. or incident management. And I put him as the well, hold guy. On, to run hold the on. Thing. I want to go back. Let's be real clear about this. I think we is the appropriate way to describe it. But let's also remember about the singularity of some executives. You are not the guy who's running the university. You're not your boss. Your boss is the COO or what? what, what? Uh, vice principal operations. So essentially the chief operating officer. Right. Okay. But, but here's the important thing. You decided this needed to happen and you communicated that to your directs. Correct. Decided independently, we better, we better get on the front foot here, take some right. actions. You, yeah. There was not a big meeting Let's because there, there are manager tools and career tools, people listening to this and they're going, oh, well, they all got together at the top and they know all this stuff. And then they said, okay, so we're going to do War Room. Not yet. We're not there yet. We are at, uh-oh, looks like a storm's coming. We need to batten down the hatches. And you didn't wait for guidance from your boss. You didn't wait for the committee meeting or the board or the provost or the prime minister of New South Wales to say, we have to protect our, you know, our diamond asset here. Let's get out in front of this. Let's do something about this. Which I think is one of the fundamental flaws of many organizations. People wait for, oh. for uh, 
their boss to tell them when actually what needs to happen is people need to see the situation that they see and take and some take action. action, even if it's just thinking, and then right. take the solution to their boss instead of waiting for their boss to tell them there is a problem. And that's really what happened here. And, you know, in in fairness or, or um, full disclosure, having been at three other previous universities, having done the CIO role and dealt with many things, it was it was easy for me to say, there's going to be a problem here. I know IT, I know how we work, I know how universities work. Um, and the, the realization that actually there's a whole bunch of things that we need to get working technically so that other parts of the university, including uh, instructors, lecturers, academics, being able to teach online, um, we have to get working. Right. And it boiled down to one thing. It was the silver bullet solution. And if it hadn't happened, the story would be very different, not just for us, but other universities as well. The problem is the great firewall of China, which people may, may hear about. You could, you could Google it. Essentially, China controls in and out information. And when they do so, it slows things down or it blocks things. And even if you use a virtual private network or VPN, which is sure. common, you're not supposed to legally use it there, or, um, it, it slows it down because China's capturing the encrypted yeah. VPN traffic and they and they try and inspect it as best they can in real sure. time. So there's a speed issue. So for us to do an, a real-time audio or real-time video call to get large video files, even asynchronously playing, it's, right. it's going to be a yeah. problem. And so um, we had to find a solution, which essentially gave us a dedicated fast pipe in and out of China to the University of Sydney so that we could then figure out how to get our content to yeah. them. I want to go back, though, just a minute. We'll be, I'll, I'll, Trevor will, when we're done, guys, Trevor will say, I got tired of you saying where well, I want to go back because there are so many <laughs> little lessons here that I, I want to, I, I think it's my job to say, okay, so here's the lesson, folks. Uh, you know, I, I always tell people, you know, there's a saying, the grass is always greener. The reason that's a saying is because the grass is not greener, Okay. You often hear people saying, there's a similar one in business, it's a different paradigm, but it's but essentially has the same sort of thing. Well, I did it, but my boss took the credit, okay? And here's the mistake of having that as one of those lessons, one of those cynical lessons we learned that cynics, frankly, love to pass along. They want everybody else to become cynics too, because then they won't have to work for an optimist and be miserable all the time. And I can assure you of this, if you ever wanted a podcast with two optimists on it, you've got it right now, because about the only guy I know who's as much of an optimist as I am, it's Trevor. Okay, so people say, well, you know, I could do that, but the boss is going to take all the credit. Yes, okay, your boss is a jerk, and he or she is going to take all the credit. The lesson people learn is, well, I'm not going to start anything. Well, okay, great. And then you wonder why nothing happens. I assure you, it is far better for you to start stuff and to learn stuff and to do stuff and to take some risks and to have your boss who's a total jerk. And pretty soon, everybody will learn that your boss is a total jerk. It may not be during your lifetime, but I promise you, hell reaches out and grabs the people that need to be reached out to. Uh, and usually, as the saying goes, the Lord's judgment is coming and that right soon. Um, your boss will pay the price. But if you tell yourself, I'm a cynic, my boss is going to take credit, I'm not going to do anything. We go back to the point I made earlier. If you don't take action, the action will take you. And your boss will come up with something perhaps less good. And you will now, because he or she is in charge, you will be left with a much smaller playing field. And if you want to become an executive, I assure you, the way to become an executive is not to avoid risk, not to avoid oh, my boss might take credit for that. He might get promoted and not me. So I'm not going to be the one that tries to put take this on the forward foot, right? We need to get on our front foot here. I think that's the way you described it earlier. Yep. And I hear this all the time. Mark, should I do this? And I'm almost like, I'm going to just start having a recording of me say, if you ask me, should I do this? Unless it's unethical or whatever. If you believe you're doing in the right, in the best interest of your organization, do it. Don't ask me, just do it. Don't worry about the political ramifications, or at least think about them and then mitigate them as you can. But she was, I got to tell you, the number of conversations I have, Trevor, were, well, we'll wait for the board to meet. 
Everybody's nervous. Everybody knows something's going on. And they're waiting for a cascade of stuff to come down, which I've always felt. Now, I'm a very strong high D. I always felt that when I waited for stuff to come down, I felt like they were handcuffs. The the board meets, the group senior people meet, then the, my bosses meet, and then I get a deliverables list. Whereas if I'd have been thinking at the same time as the board, I might've come up with, because I know my stuff better than them, I would might've come up with my own list. And if at least I have my own list, when my boss gives me his or hers, I can say, okay, let me suggest some things that may need to be out on the list. So, You're absolutely right. And there's so, so much in there that organizations need people to be active, active in the area that they know. You've got a context, you've got a situation, you've got a set of responsibilities. Your job is to act. Yes. You're better to get into trouble for doing the wrong thing than doing nothing. And that passivity is what kills organizations or prevents them from reaching their full potential. And that actually does describe the culture that we're trying to shift away from at the University of Sydney. Colliery to that is the culture at Monash University that I came from, which was relentless. It was a constant pressure and drive. And I remember telling my team a few months before, before I left that there's no better place to work. And I wasn't yeah, thinking of leaving yeah, it that way. Right. Because the political problems that often people use as excuses is you can't, the funding problems that people say we don't have the money, um, all of those excuses <laughs> actually strangely weren't there. What was there was an incredible amount of accountability. So deliver or suffer the consequences. Whereas at the University of Sydney at the time, and we're moving away from it, it was, we just wait to be told what to do. Mm -hmm. um, and you, you talked earlier about the boss taking credit. I think I might be wrong on this. I'm happy to have you um, correct me on it. But I, I think that people have the wrong focus if that's what they're thinking. The job is not about the boss. The job is about the results. Yes. And and what people need to think about is, what do I need to do to get the outcomes for the organization I need? And if there is a political issue with the boss or he's going to take the credit, um, I'll have to manage or mitigate that. Right. And why you need to is because you have to live to fight another day as well. So you got to balance getting as much done as you can without getting yourself kicked out of the organization. Career tools, results, and relationships. And the most right. important relationship you have is with your boss. All right, so you now have decided, knowing full well that your bosses are working on things and we're going to talk about things soon, you've decided, at least in your neck of the woods, you've figured out that we, your division, your group, your department is going to play a crucial role in however this thing plays out, and you believe that you need to be pointed northeast or northwest or whatever you want to call southwest, it doesn't matter, and you have to solve a problem because you know they're going to say, can we deliver remotely or virtually. And your first answer is going to be no, if they ask me right now. So you want to get working on it. So you ask your directs who you've spent the last 90 days trying to get to know a little bit. I, I make a small point and say, I seem to remember having a podcast about, you know, go slow for the first 90 days. And we, you and I yep. talked about that, but now you have no choice, right? You, you've got to take action. So you get your group together. And I assume then you communicate more broadly to their folks as well. Yeah. So we basically had a conversation and said, if we're going to do something, who do we get together in the room from the various places to figure this out? Okay. And um, basically assembled that room. And at that point, obviously it was face-to-face. -face, so we had, we had a room jam-packed. And I have to say, one of my, I really like over- stuffing a room. So if there's 10 chairs in the room, I want 15 people. I want standing room only. Uh, and that's what yeah, I, that's what I, I like. It gives a feeling of, of urgency, I think, right. and uh, action and, and uh, a good factor. Anyway, you know, I spent some time in there at the beginning and, and um, would come in several times a day to sort of give direction and, and the things that executives should do. Optimism, hope, uh, we can do it. You know, this is important kind of thing. But we wanted people to, to think, well, what are the problems that we would need to have solved? And, and I remember saying in the room, no barriers. We can't have any limited thinking. I said, I don't want someone to say, but academics might not use it. Don't worry about that. You might be right. Right. But we cannot limit our thinking that way. And I remember saying, too, is anyone here a lawyer? Knowing that probably no one was, but I was still someone new. And, and no one said it. So I said, I don't want to hear anyone say it's illegal. 
Yeah. Now, I said, you're not going to do anything illegal. Let me be clear. But I, you're not a lawyer, so you can't decide that. I want ideas no matter what. And, right. you know, yeah. stolen from your brainstorming podcast, um, I, I remember saying, no idea is worse than peanut butter. Okay? Yeah. I want ideas, and we're going to move forward. And, you know, at that point in time, what was really important was, was speed and action and motion. And I set down some ground rules um, that I then put in place in the next room that we had, which was not everyone talks. You got 25 people in the room and you got 20 minutes. You can't go around the room asking Johnny and Sally. Go, go back, did. help a little bit. You, 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 you live this. So uh, don't ask the fish about the water. You said, I've got 25 people in the room. You're saying that one of the components of the war room was you met every day for 20 minutes. Yeah, in fact, the whole room uh, at various times met all day. All day. Uh, some that, people that, may that's come my in and out of a war room. But yeah, some people were in there, yeah, all the time. But I, I, I wasn't necessarily in the room the whole time. Uh, a period of weeks, and it wasn't a joint conversation all day, all the time. But there definitely was a period of time in the morning where you had a what amounted to an all war room hands meeting. Correct, but there were key people that stayed in the room. That could okay. have been yeah. 10, it could have been 20 all day, depending on what was going on, people in and out. Uh, we'd send people out of the room to go do something, right. come back and report back, that sort of thing. And one of my directors is responsible for incident management, service management, you know, right. has the responsibility to drive when there's a major, major outage, that sort of thing, um, doing this. And what's important is having a semblance of brainstorming and letting people um, free flow ideas, but also having some very clear structured rules um, to keep it moving. And, you know, one of the things we we said was, if we're going to go around and ask people what views <laughs> they have, we can't do that. If you've, if you've got something to say, we need you to think about what that is and what is the most concise way of saying it is. And if we say, oh, Tom, You've not spoken up, but I think you might have something for us. Do you have anything? If Tom doesn't have anything, Tom should just say no. Right. Not, um, well, I not feel really I need to communicate. Right. right. Yeah. Because <laughs> it, and it, it might seem mean, but it's just about speed when you need, when time is incredibly precious. And we needed people to go off, find ideas, bring them back, quickly assess them, uh, what to move forward on. But one of the key things as well, and, and you talk about it in many other of your podcasts is how important your network is. And in a time of crisis, tapping into people who know people who know people is incredibly important. And I remember calling, texting, emailing uh, a whole bunch of people I knew saying, do you have any ideas on how we could solve this problem? Right. And one of the guys, Pete, who actually now works for us, is very, um, uh, he helped get the startup community going over a decade uh, ago in Sydney and in um, and in Australia, uh, knows lots of people. He, he knows VPs of like Amazon and other things. And he set me off and other people did too and with all of these groups of people. And, you know, most of them were bust, but at least we tried. Right. One company came back two o'clock. I remember one afternoon, I got a call from a guy named David uh, who worked for Alibaba Cloud, which is a Chinese company. We'd never done business with them before. And he said, oh, Trev, Pete told me about your problem. I think we might be able to help. <laughs> <laughs> he said, tell me your problem. I told him the problem. He said, here's what I think we can do. I said, great. Nine o'clock tomorrow morning, could you guys come with your, your idea to the war room? And uh, they showed up. Uh, not only did they have the idea, they had it kind of running. They said, well, we tinkered overnight and we kind of figured out. Basically what guy. they were doing was trying to find a way to connect our network directly in to China with all of the telecom providers there and have a fast pipe. Um, and that was the silver bullet that we needed for everything else to happen. And the the danger here is thinking, oh, you've landed the silver bullet. Now everything's easy. Actually, that made everything hard because now we had to do all the other things right. that we had like to get do. Get professors to teach in classrooms vir virtually that and they're right. like, no, we and don't do that. We have hundreds of computers across campus that are used in teaching labs that students go to and they use software. We have to put that software online. And you might, and some people listening might say, well, Trevor, that's been done by various groups years ago. Yeah, it had been. We'd never done We'd it. We'd never done it. It was brand new for us. So it's all these things that had to flow out from that. But I, you know, there's lots sort of to tell, but I think maybe that can come out in the next uh, war room that, that I described. But I do remember 
um, sort of feeling, okay, it's been a couple of weeks. We've got the solution in place. Um, it's, it's really good. Two things that, that, um, that I want to say about that. One is I was out for dinner on a Saturday night with my wife and I got a call from my boss was six o'clock at night and he never calls. As opposed really to your previous that, boss. As opposed to my previous boss, he would call me all the time. In fact, he called me once Christmas day, 8.30 a.m. Uh, they needed that to, guy. in fairness, yeah. but uh, I would get you know constant calls. Uh, but that was the way the environment was. It was relentless, pushed, and, and you know, they got the results out of it. But he said, oh, Trev, I think um, there's uh, this China situation with the pandemic. Look like it looks like it could be getting worse. Um, I think we should do something. <laughs> About it. So just giving you a heads up for Monday. You, this is already, how many weeks into your war room are you? Look, I, I think it was a couple weeks, maybe two or three. Uh, my memory is a little vague on that. But basically, we had been meeting. We'd been solving lots of problems. Right. We figured out the silver bullet, and we figured out a couple of other things. Okay, good. Now, okay. I hadn't so, told him. And, and again, I we just want to say again, your boss may or may not know that you're doing this. You're trying to take activity, solve solve what you perceive as a coming problem. And he calls you on a Saturday night at dinner, which gives you some indication that he considers this to be fairly serious, even if he sounds fairly laconic in his delivery and says, I think we're going to need to do something about this. Yes. To me, no, no offense to your boss, who I think is a good guy. That is, to me is a quintessential example of something we're going to do in an upcoming executive tools cast called energy in the executive. It's an important concept. Most people don't get for, and it's, it belongs in executive tools. And essentially it is the behavior of the person that determines whether or not they're an executive, not the role, not the power, not the title, not the election, even, even if it's a political thing, if it's a governmental thing, it is, what, it, what Trevor did in those first three weeks, that is executive behavior, irrespective of whether he's an executive or not. Forget about the title. Forget about the role. I just read something in the Wall Street Journal which said, Richard Feynman, one of my heroes, Nobel Prize winning physicist and hilarious person, uh, been dead some, I think, 20 years now, uh, once said, I was out in the woods with my dad one day and he was showing me the birds. And uh, different birds and so on. And I pointed to one of the birds and says, what's that one's name? And my dad said, you don't need to worry about names. If you want to know about something, study its behavior. Now, I think that has really interesting political correctness, cancel culture implications for today. But separate from that, it also gives us an insight into what it is to be an executive. An executive is somebody who executes, who makes things happen, makes things happen across the organization. It's fascinating to me because I don't think, Trevor, you've told me this story three or four times. It's one of the reasons why I said, dude, we have to do a big podcast on this. That I don't think a lot of managers, individual contributors necessarily understand. They would assume that if you're running this war room, your boss told you this is what needs to happen and here are the 13 things and we need to do this. No. You were just doing what you believe was the right thing to do, irrespective. Now, you don't think your boss is dumb. You know he's aware, but you also know he's operating with the, the board of regents and all kinds of other stuff. So it takes him or her, in this case him, a couple of weeks to finally call you and say, hey, I think we made it to do something about this. And I assume that, well, I'm, I'm not going to drop the other shoe. You drop the other shoe. Well, I, I think... Um, in fairness, I, you know, I might have said somewhere along the way that I'm working with the team. Yeah, sure. Uh, uh, well, of course you would. Thinking. As a matter but, of courtesy, you would. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't have gone into detail as to the problem, the urgency, that sort of thing. And we wouldn't have talked much about the pandemic uh, at that point other than, oh, look what's happening over there. But yeah. he called me and he basically said, we need to do something. And, and I remember saying to him, and I kind of chose my words carefully because yeah. Uh, but I basically said, it's done. It's handled. Um, you know, we've got it. Uh, and he said, oh, let's be careful not to make promises you can't keep. And and uh, everyone knows how um, old the IT infrastructure is, and we haven't invested in our capabilities, that sort of thing. But that gave me a bit of a shot uh, in the arm again to go, oh, man, okay, so we got to crank this up a notch now, because yeah. now we've got visibility now we have to do it. Uh, from the top and um, and keep going with things. By the way, when you said the part about 
you you said to him, I think it's when you said it's done. I thought you were going to say, "Welcome to the party, boss," <laughs> which <laughs> no, is no. probably something I would have said when I was twenty five years old. Like, "Hey, boss, by the way, we've been on this for a while. Welcome to the show. Come on in. We'll show you what's going on." Well, you know, I guess having worked at three other universities, I sure. kind of understood the sleepy nature oh, of it, yeah. and, that, and that there's opportunity allowed for me to take action without being encumbered by someone else's ideas of what it should look like. And it kind of reminds me of the story. I was at the University of Lethbridge during the time of the global financial crisis. And I remember we were meeting weekly, all the deans and senior execs, what are we going to do about the budget crisis and so on? And then April came around and, um, the, it was either the provost or the president at the time said, look, um, we're going to, we're going to, uh, table these meetings until September, actually October. And the reason was, is because, well, April, the semester ends, everyone goes away, does research from our holidays. And September is when school starts again, classes are busy. So we don't really have time to talk prices and we'll meet again in October. So, you know, I was going to say younger and cheekier, but probably uh, still that way. I remember saying, is the crisis over on hold? Like, are they pausing for us <laughs> while while we do this? Like, right. it's backwards. Um, and yeah. so those sorts of things that I think I've learned over the years to say, well, um, you, you look for those opportunities to take action where you can, knowing there's less likelihood that you're going to be told not to or, or get yeah. into trouble. And so um, things started progressing. Um, and then um, I guess can, can we go back just a little bit because this this is about war room, but it ends up being, of course, about executive behavior and being on the front foot and so on. So you talk to your directors. Going back several minutes here, you talk to your directors, and you guys there was a discussion about who needed to be in the room, and you made a decision about the capabilities you needed in the room. That meant a certain number of people. You probably, I would assume, had an idea that if I have this many capabilities that I need, and it means that there has to be 100 people in the room, my capabilities list is wrong. You have both a capabilities requirement, but you also know human-wise that there are some limits that you get degradation of usability. So in your head, how many people did you think you could deal with in this first war room? Less is always better. Right. So, um, you know, 15 Okay, so 15. But here's what's interesting. You also yeah. said you like a standing only room, standing room only room, which I do too. So you're saying I need 15 people and I need a room that has seats for 10. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And then and then adjusting based on new information which sure. says actually Johnny should be in here too and Sally should be in here too and then right. it sort of sort of grows. And in fact, the membership changed over time because it's like, well we should bring this person in and and, and yeah, I mean, or, that or this person's thing. not contributing and doesn't seem to get it. And right. I'd rather talk to somebody who knows most of what they know and get rid of that guy. Yes. And you know, what's really interesting to me. There are a lot of people that turned out to be really awesome that no one thought was awesome. Cool. There, they, I had directors telling me, I always thought that person had an attitude problem and was being disruptive, but I have to admit they stepped up to the plate here and they are really good. Yeah. And it was a great example for me of reinforcing what I had already been starting to talk about culturally. That is, people behave partly because of themselves, but also because of the context or environment they find themselves. And you change that, you change um, the behavior. And there are some really good people now that had this experience not occurred. They would not be in the job they currently are, and exactly. more importantly, not contributing far more than they were. And that reminds me of one other thing. A few weeks after we got this going live, I got stopped in the hallway by one of the technical guys that I'd never talked to before. And he was sort of shy and sheepish. And, you know, he's several layers between us, um, which, um, you know, was a bit intimidating probably as well. But, you know, he said to me, Trevor, you just need to know how important this experience has been for so many of us. Most of us have worked for the, at the university for a lot of years. Many of us have graduated from our degrees here and we love the place and we just want to help make it better. And we haven't been able to. Uh, um, it, it, it's, it reinforced something I'd already known, which is people were just 
suppressed and pushed off into a corner and not um, allowed to contribute and sort of you know, the bad boss. And it's not just in IT, it was across the board. And, you, and, and what this experience did was essentially say, it's given me the chance to do the job that we want to do. And he had tears uh, in his eyes when uh, he told me. And that wasn't a unique experience. And it reinforced again for me, um, you've got to create an environment that allows everyone to give everything that they can and their best as a team. And does that mean everything's rosy all the time? Does it mean everybody's idea gets up? No, but people want to feel like they're contributing and they're making a difference. Yes. That just slapped me across the face yeah. uh, again when he told me that. Well, imagine somebody who wants to contribute, wants to make a difference. And by the way, the conventional wisdom about management is that it's about the individual. You need to make them feel safe. You need to make them feel this. You need to make them feel that. And there is no discussion. You never read. It's about how can you, I, I don't mean to say, this is going to sound terribly harsh. How can you manipulate their emotions so that they feel good? And then if they feel good, they'll do a good word for you. And there is no discussion about the fact that in times like this, in a crisis, or even in regular operational situations, giving people clear goals and trusting them and communicating with them uh, energetically, sometimes even forcefully, and believing that they can do something, and then having them see what it feels like to contribute to something that makes where they are better, that's 10 times better than trying to get inside their minds or their hearts and truly understand them. Give them a chance to understand themselves and do what every human at some level wants to do, which is contribute having yeah. the joy of accomplishment and contribution sense of accomplishment yeah. give them the opportunity yeah. to add value yes yeah no no other fancy little um idea that's floating around about making people feel better at work and happy at uh, work and you can bring your dog that might help and all the other stuff it's actually just about a sense of accomplishment belonging on making things better and and he just summarized it so well loves the organization got his degree from there yeah He's been, you know, wants to do things just tap into that unleash it yeah you're preaching to the choir folks we're going to end it here this week obviously there's more to talk about we have probably another hour in front of us will come out in a couple of weeks i want to thank trevor again for donating his time to the community and he's feeling like he's giving back so we'll see you in two weeks with Part two of two, we will finish next episode.